Douglas Kahn presents his lecture, Sound Matters, One Energy Among Others. Based on his most recent book, Earth Sound Earth Signal, Energies and Earth Magnitude in the Arts, Kahn reworks the histories of science, communications, music and the arts to account for the incursion of electromagnetism into culture from the 19th century to the present. Investigating the trade between acoustics and electromagnetism in aesthetics and the arts, Kahn poses questions for new approaches in the arts, ecology and media where sound is but one energy among others. This lecture was recorded on the 28th of August 2014 at Gertrude Contemporary. So what I wanted to do, um, when I was talking to Danny and, and Joel uh, about this, um, they said that at Gertrude, they and Helen, in uh, communicating with Helen uh, earlier, um, they said that they would they liked presentations that were of current topics, that developing topics. <clears throat> um, Joel said something like a, a, a thought a thought experiment. Um, I would like to uh, not. Uh, uh, I would like to get to that quickly, uh, but I think I, I just need to lay down a, a few things in the book because this um, the this book like took about ten or twelve years to research and write, and and I was holding most of it pretty close to my chest uh, until the last. And so there's a lot there's a lot of different uh, things in there, and it would so it'd be kind of hard to talk without a, a little bit of background. Um, this is one, one of the things I'm going to be referring to. This is uh, this Whistler's. It's a form of natural, natural radio. Uh, it's produced mostly by uh, lightning strikes. Uh, lightning is, lets out a full, full uh, range of an electromagnetic burst um, from radio to gamma. And it bounces uh, up to the ionosphere and reflects off the ionosphere, goes down to Earth, bounces off that, and goes like that. If you hear something like that from a few co uh, hundred kilometers away, it'll sound like a little bird chirp, you know, a little sliding tone. Uh, there's, a, there's all these nice sounds described from the, uh, uh, like, uh, tweaks and bonks and, you know, all, all these... Uh, uh, nice sounds. Um, Whistler is this glissando that, that happens. Uh, it needs, for because the, the signal is traveling at the speed of light, it needs a lot of distance to get spread out. Um, it's sort of like the refraction of light in a way. It's sort of like a, how light gets spread out into a, into a rainbow. This is, uh, uh, this burst of lightning will, will it'll bounce up, uh, in between in the ionospheric waveguide, uh, it'll, but every now and then it'll catch a ride on a magneto-ionic flux line uh, out into the out into the magnetosphere, six Earth radii into outer space, but then it'll come back down into the opposite hemisphere. Um, so if you hear like a if you hear a whistler without this uh, burst at this first. It means you're hearing a, a, a thunderstorm in the opposite hemisphere. It's kind of a sister city 
relationship. Uh, the, uh, you, it's a conjugate, it's called a conjugate point. So, um, and the aurora borealis, uh, you know, lets off a different sound. It's uh, the dawn chorus. It sounds like a, a bird's uh, chirping. Um, now, I, I started, uh, I'll, just to, let's see. Um, the nice thing about the uh, uh, VLF, very low frequency, is that uh, it's a very long wave. Uh, uh, it's not like, it's natural radio, but it's at a very long wave, which means that uh, when it's traveling at the speed of light, it uh, oscillates in the human audible range. So it's not like a regular radio where you have to, it's real high frequency and you have to sort of step it down to, to transduce it into the human audible range. These are already occurring in the human audible range. So what that means, and I'll get into this in just a little bit, it means that people in the 19th century could hear these. And they could not only hear these, they heard them in telephone lines and telegraph lines where they had a telephone hooked up to it. So they, they, were, um, they were hearing radio in the last quarter of the 19th century before, 20 years before Marconi invented the wireless telegraph. Uh, uh, they, were, uh, uh, they were hearing these musical sounds before anything like music was being broadcasted on, uh, by Fessenden or anybody else. Um, uh, they were hearing them 10 years before um, Hertz empirically proved the existence of electromagnetic waves. They were heard on the, this telephone line that was an antenna before antenna, anybody knew what an antenna was. <clears> there <throat> was like an accident that they were hearing it, but, um, but they were hearing it. So radio, radio was heard before it was invented. And now I'm gonna tell you how I got there. <clears throat> I got there by um, 2002, I was giving a paper on, on Joyce Hinterding and Alvin Lucia. Joyce Hinterding, the Australian artist, uh, uh, she works with her partner, David Haynes. They're having, in this coming year, they're having a big solo show at, at the MCA. First, you know, every space that... Yoko Ono had, David and Joyce will have. And the exhibition is called Energies, uh, Haynes and Hinterding, or Hinterding and Haynes. Uh, but so, but in, in 2002, I was giving a paper on the Joyce's uh, use of VLF and uh, Alvin Lussier, the composer, um, he did this piece called Spherics that had to do with natural radio also. Anyway, I was giving a, a talk, I gave, gave a paper, you know, just a 20-minute on paper on a panel, and afterwards I realized I didn't know what the hell I was talking about, <clears throat> and it's really, uh, it was a productive in, insecurity, um, uh, and I, but I, I realized that there was sort of no, uh, not only, uh, I did, not only, was I not answering the questions that uh, there weren't any good questions around? The, the, so, I, you know, I had to like sort of uh, kind of change the, the problematic. This is the first piece um, 
that Joyce did. It's called Electrical Storms. It's electrostatic speakers. Um, on one speaker, there's recordings of VLF, of the whistlers that were made at Walter D. Maria's uh, lightning fields. Um, uh, not more than there was lightning there. It's a bad time to be sticking an antenna up in the air when there's lightning. Um, and, but the other one was a, uh, a VLF antenna that, uh, that was live. So, uh, the, she got, uh, Phil Nimblock helped her build the, uh, these electrostatic speakers. The, a little bit, uh, in 1995 though, she had sort of what, what I think was a masterwork of the 1990s. Sorry, it's getting a little warm here. Um, which is areology. It's about 25, 30, 35 kilometers of copper wire around four columns in a, in a bay. Uh, you can't, it's sort of hard to see. You can't walk through that. It's, you know, it's, it's sort of a stunning sculptural piece, but it also is a big dumb an, an antenna. It's, uh, it's soaking up the uh, ambient uh, energy. Just like uh, in here right now, there's all, all this, uh, mostly from the electrical grid that's uh, from, um, it's not only soaking it up, it's storing it, sort of like a little voltaic pile in between the wires. It's, it's, this, uh, has, it's a big capacitor. It is uh, gathering up and storing enough energy that she, can, that she runs the sound off of it, but nothing's plugged into the wall. You know, it's sort of, it's powering itself. It's sort of a form of what's called um, energy harvesting, energy scavenging uh, now. But she was doing it as a sculptor. She liked the, uh, she thought that all materials were vibrating, all, you know, everything is sort of vibrating and she wanted to uh, bring that in. So she has, uh, uh, it's, it's sort of, it's a brilliant piece. Um, and more recently she's, uh, she does it with, she moved, she realized that uh, this was earlier on, but she's, she's doing this, uh, more and more of these now. She realized this, this piece, I think, this was shown in New York uh, at Volta, but at um, Queensland uh, Art Museum, the Brisbane, yeah, they bought, they bought it. <clears throat> and what it is is graphite. She realized that graphite is a, is a conductor. So, you know, a Saul LeWitt <laughs> drawing is having this sort of relationship, you know, if it's graphite it's ha and uh, other artwork, it's having this energetic, it's sort of in resonance uh, with the room. It's, it's um, conducting, uh, uh, it has this inductive relationship to the room. So she's, uh, she's doing, uh, she's pulling, uh, again, sort of like areology, it's pulling in all the ambient energy, she has an ultrasonic speaker that, um, where the sounds that it's pulling in um, can be heard. So, but the uh, it's it's this switch realizing that that a common material like graphite is has an energetic component was was is really sort of a major uh, major shift. Um, Alvin Lussier, experimental, <laughs> how many people know who Alvin Lussier is? Yeah. Uh, American, one of the <clears throat> canonical, sort of second generation after Cage, 
uh, canonical American experimental music composer. Um, I am sitting in a room. That's, uh, that's him. Uh, music for solo performer, the brainwave piece, that's, uh, that's him. <clears throat> um, in 1966, he did a piece based upon Whistler's. Um, he, it was based upon recording. He sort of wanted to do it live. In uh, 1981, um, he dropped Whistler's from his catalog. 1981, did a, a thing called Spherics. Spherics is short for atmospheric, for atmospheric radio. Then did a thing in 1991 with the Arditti String Quartet uh, based upon some of the sounds related to uh, natural radio. But um, he got he, he got this, the sounds for Whistlers from uh, from this album, 1953, Out of This World. There was another one, 1955, that had nothing but uh, the sounds of Whistlers. Uh, the other thing besides Whistlers is the, um, uh, the sound of uh, earthquakes on the first side. So he did he, uh, music for solo performer. The brainwave piece is probably is with I am sitting in a room is probably his most famous piece. So the thing is, he he was uh, I was able to talk with the physicist who worked with him, um, who gave him the idea, gave him the equipment. Um, for his first major piece, and um, so, uh, but um, Alvin was talking about it as natural electromagnetic sounds. Um, so the um, when when I first you know I was his student, uh, and he talked about this, and I got you know I sort of uh, natural electro you know don't you realize there's mediation you know blah blah you know this tech you can't have nature with technologies it can't be natural and um, anyway I went into this sort of research sort of having that type of pedestrian line and turned around 180 degrees and um, so and I'll I'll tell you uh, why in a second. But anyway, so this sort of uh, natural electromagnetic sound on the, at the level of the scalp uh, combined with this Whistler's. Uh, now, both he and Joyce knew how Whistler's were produced, so knew the sort of going to outer space. Um, and um, so when Alvin would talk about uh, these spherics or Whistler's, what he, what he liked about it was that these little, um, when, when, um, when he heard these sounds, he, these little, you know, almost shakuhachi-like lilts, he would, <clears throat> he liked the idea that they were produced by an enormous amount of energy in a lightning strike uh, and traveled tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of kilometers just to, pro just to produce this little sound. So he heard um, sort of the, the poetic of these sounds. He, uh, he heard that. And I, I, came up, I came up with a word to explain that, uh, uh, of hearing that type of the, the, spatial, the, the spatial dimension of the production of long sounds um, in transperception. Uh, that's, that's a section. I ended up inventing some new terms 
Transperception is one of them. Electrosonic is another. There's a few few others that I can go into. But that, that was how he, um, I actually found that this idea of transperception also in Henry David Thoreau, when he would hear the, the sound of a bell coming through the woods, it was not just sort of the bell sound, it was the bell as modulated, to use that word, modulated by the, the, the needles on it on a tree, you know, on a fir tree, and, and all, the, all these sort of artifacts within the intervening space. It was as much of a sound uh, production of, uh, of all the intervening elements of the intervening space as it was as, the, uh, as it was of the origin. <clears throat> but anyway, that's, that's how Alvin would hear the, uh, these, uh, these sounds. Um, but uh, this was a, this from the scalp to outer space. Um, uh, he, he's, he came from New England, Charles Ives, he, transcendentalism, everything, uh, and had this sort of sense of spatiality that comes, uh, comes with that. And then he was thinking of that, of the brainwaves to outer space as an electromagnetic spatiality, <clears throat> uh, specifically. Because brain waves are sort of the electromagnetic the summation of the electrochemical synaptical activity in the brain uh, uh, fed into a brainwave control device. But anyway, um, <clears throat> John Cage uh, picked up on that uh, quite soon <clears throat> um, in his preparation for Variation 7, which was a reception piece. Uh, uh, he tried to do... It, yeah, it, <clears throat> this is a letter he wrote to David Tudor, and it was saying, um, "Let's uh, let's use brainwaves and outer space," and they're going to credit both of them to um, to Lucier. Uh, uh, Lucier's uh, it's not appreciated now, but Lucier's early reputation in the U.S. after the brainwave piece and after this piece he was traveling with was, "Oh, he's the brainwave to outer space guy." <clears throat> That's how he was uh, the first, uh, the first international uh, live festival of live electronic music at Mills and Davis in the Bay Area. That's how. Uh, that's how he was perceived. You know, that's how they knew him. He was the sort of brainwaves to outer space. So yeah, and anyway, so <clears throat> uh, uh, now that I have some, you know, uh, hindsight on the 1960s, this was. Um, he was one of the first cabs off the rank, and as far as he was looking at electromagnetism as not just uh, artistic material, artistic raw material, but also uh, nature, um, as a form of nature, as, as it is. Uh, the other person that was thinking this way in terms of light in particular was James Terrell. You might have heard of him. Uh, there was a thing in art form the, um, where Robert Morris was uh, talking about a fictionalized Terrell as the artist who worked with high-frequency sound perception in an anechoic chamber. He did that with the uh, Los Angeles County Art and Technology um, thing with uh, Bob uh, Robert Irwin uh, and became interested in the possibility of the perception of electromagnetic uh, energy as art material. Now, the, the person who literalized that more than anybody else is Robert Berry uh, in his, this, the 
probably the, the most famous show of conceptual art that Seth Siglaub put on. And <clears throat> um, there's a chapter on, in the book on, on Robert Berry. Um, and he, he, did, he had these electromagnetic waves filling up the, the room. Um, it's a little, <clears throat> I can go into it if you like, but, but he had this idea that there is, there is nothing that is not energy. Um, uh, John Cage said there was, uh, there's no such thing as silence. Same time, uh, James Terrell was saying uh, there is no such thing as an absence of light. There is no such thing as darkness. You um, humans, you know, uh, drink light through their skin and manifest it in terms of lucid dreaming and you know, sort of internalize embodied light uh, in in all these ways. And it's this is the one. Of, he has several origin stories about how he became interested in light, but one of them, because he was a Quaker and doing anti-war stuff during the Vietnam period, he was giving some dodgy advice to draft evaders who turned out to be federal officials. <laughs> so he was uh, sent to prison and to avoid what often happens in prison, he did things to get in solitary confinement, and, and so he was in totally dark space, and they, found out that you can uh, dark adapt, dark adaptation, you find that uh, you can deal with a, really a lot of low level uh, of light. But uh, it <clears throat> uh, comes out uh, explicit. This is sort of uh, Robert Berry's uh, said this explicitly that, you know, it's not that artists don't already use <clears throat> energy, just dealing with uh, light, you know, that the, the problem is that the art history has been written uh, just based upon this little tiny patch of the electromagnetic spectrum. Whereas, uh, you know, as, as Joyce and Alvin and other people have shown <clears throat> is, or Jakob Kierkegaard's uh, piece <clears throat> about Chernobyl, there, there's ways to, <clears throat> there's ways to sort of set up different artistic practices all along the uh, electromagnetic spectrum. Now, it was one thing that I had to do uh, for writing this book because there wasn't anything on the sort of the cultural incursion of the electromagnetic spectrum. So I had, in the book, there's sort of this big skeletal structure of, that talks about the uh, cultural uh, constitution of the electromagnetic, electromagnetic spectrum. Another person, you may have heard of, uh, <clears throat> uh, made, made notes to himself um, in the box of 1914, I think, uh, to make a painting of frequency. <clears throat> and this was his, uh, this was it uh, that led to the large class. The, the book Duchamp in Context by Linda Henderson has uh, <clears throat> a chapter, I think it's chapter eight, uh, the large class is a painting of frequency, the electromagnetics, you know, electromagnetism. It was, it's, besides what, I, I, besides my book, <clears throat> Linda Henderson, this, she, she got there first. <laughs> uh, she, she's the, uh, the, uh, she's the, the person who's written the most about, uh, energy electromagnetism in the arts. She's coming out here for, the, we're holding a conference at the same time as David and Joyce's uh, MCA exhibition, 
Uh, she's coming out here. Martin Howes uh, is coming out, and we're uh, going to try to bring some other people out for the uh, conference. So radio was heard before it was invented. Uh, so the first person to hear radio on Earth was Thomas Watson's uh, assist. I mean uh, Alexander Graham Bell's assistant, uh, Thomas Watson. Uh, it was the first first word in modern communications. Watson, come here. I need you. <laughs> Um, but you know he's uh, uh, he's this is uh, this is what happens when you start looking at things on the grassroots level instead of thinking of media history as uh, great inventions and great inventors and really good business plans and patent disputes and demographic uh, diffusion and all all these things that media history is sort of written as. Um, uh, when I went looking for natural radio, well, somebody told me you should look at, uh, Paul D. Marinas actually told me that you should look at uh, Thomas Watson's autobiography, and, and sure enough, uh, uh, there it was. Uh, but then I, I got, I took about a year just going through grassroots <coughs> telegraph journals or technical journals, personal accounts, all this stuff, and started listening for the 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 noises that people heard in the telephone. <clears throat> and they, there were these earth currents and these, other, uh, these sounds of magnetic storms and all, all these things that were not, not a noise, not just the noise that you, know, you want to get out so people can speak more clearly. It was the, it was the noises of nature. Um, so it, in fact, it's it sort of to do media history on a certain level, you need classes in experimental music. <laughs> you know, you need to have sort of a delectation of, of noise um, because if you, uh, you uh, the sound of the, the, the first sound of electromagnetism came through noises that most historians like, you know, most engineers want to get rid of the, get rid of the noise, uh, but there's actually uh, they were throwing the baby out with the, if you don't listen to the noise, you're throwing the baby out with the uh, bathwater. So the early silence in a telephone circuit uh, gave an opportunity for listening to stray electric currents that cannot easily be had today. I used to spend hours at night in the laboratory listening to the many strange noises in the telephone and speculating as to their cause, one of the most common sounds was a snap followed by a grating sound that lasted two or three seconds before it faded into silence. And another was like the chirping of a bird. My theory at the time was that the currents causing these sounds came from explosions on the sun. That's not a, a, a bad theory. Or that they were signals from another planet. Um, they were mystic enough to suggest the latter explanation, but I never detected any regularity in them that might indicate they were intelligible signals. Uh, plenty of other people thought that that way. In 1924, on Radio Silence Day, all this uh, uh, military and commercial communications were stopped because it was a point at which Mars was closing, coming closest. This is 1924, coming. This is sort of governments were participating in this. <laughs> so they were, they were hoping maybe, you know, with Mars coming that close, they could uh, pick up some radio. So uh, that's in the book, too. Um, 
but uh, they were seldom loud enough to interfere with the use of the telephone on a short line. I perhaps may claim to be the first person who ever listened to static currents. So this is what he was hearing. I mean, he, he did not know. It was not until the 1950s that they realized that the, the whistlers in particular were, you had to sort of go into outer space and back. But, uh, but uh, the chirping of a bird, it just so happened that that year the, that, that he was writing about, the aurora borealis came to the lower, you know, came further south than it ever had been in a long time, and they were seeing auroras. I, I found one person who was listening on the telephone and ex, uh, listening to the sound of the aurora as it was uh, as it was happening. Uh, I had to go back and sort of uh, work with some uh, uh, radio scientists and and find sort of the, the, this non scientific record uh, to to uh, to make sure that. Uh, that could happen uh, in the long lines, and that that was in fact what what was being heard. So Watson, um, in terms of experimental music and noise, um, he was listening to noise and odd little sounds for pleasure decades before Luigi Russolo's uh, Art of Noises Manifesto, 1913, and and to electronic music long before <clears throat> uh, before its time. I have a chapter. That is sort of a theorization of re-theorization of electronic music, sort of tying it back to nature. It's sort of seen as a kind of a parade of technological, uh, the parade of technology uh, with no, no ties to uh, to nature. It, uh, it had to do also an electronic electrical music in the 1920s was. Uh, mostly about control rather than what was being controlled. In 1960s, you get the sort of this kind of Cajun thing uh, about not needing to control everything in music, and and they uh, start noticing that the the nature of electromagnetism as something, <coughs> yeah, you can influence, but it's already moving. And and there's several people in the book. Uh, that talk about in, in computer circuits or you know electronic music of uh, uh, talking about sort of stepping back one half step back and just becoming and because it's already moving you don't if you're making other music you sort of have to put the movement movement in first and whereas electronic uh, electronics it's already moving so you just sort of have to get out of the way and you can influence it. So 25 years before Watson, another person was hearing, was uh, having this aesthetic engagement with the newest technological form, and that was Henry David Thoreau. He was, uh, he, this is out at Walden, and people, often people think that, oh, he's sort of out, you know, communing with nature. There was a, the train went through where he was, and it was sort of raked out the hillside. It was called the Deep Cut. Um, and in the Deep Cut, there were the telegraph lines would go through. But he would be out there, and he would listen to the wind going through the telegraph lines. And he called it the, uh, the telegraph harp, like an Aeolian, an Aeolian harp. Um, it's all through his journals. Uh, I have a chapter on, on Thoreau and uh, Aeolian. Uh, 
<clears throat> so no music from the telegraph harp on the causeway uh, where the wind is strong, but in the cut, the deep cut where the tr uh, train went through. This cold day, I heard memorable strains. The latent music of the earth had found a vent, here a vent, music aeolian. Uh, there were two strings, in fact, one each side. Thus, as ever, the finest uses of things are, are the accidental. Mr. Morris did not invent this music. So he had, you know, he built himself an aeolian uh, harp, but his other one was, um, uh, was, a, was the telegraph harp. You can read Thoreau and everything that Cage says about indeterminacy. Um, yeah, everything that Cage says is in, is in Thoreau's journals already. <laughs> and he said that, and he's, he's the first person who said, would say that. But anyway, so if Thoreau in 1850s listening to nature sounds and the music of the music of nature <clears throat> on the telegraph lines and within uh, within acoustics, and Watson was his, listening to the nature sounds in the, in the telephone lines, um, there was a word for the, the aeolian that goes back to ancient times, uh, the record of it. And you get up to the <coughs> transcendentalists and, and romantics, and there's aeolian stuff all over the place. And it's hooked up with the soul and Coleridge. And, um, uh, but, if, um, but there was no name for this uh, sort of the, the sound of nature coming through uh, in this electromagnetic way. So I, this is the, the other word I invented, the, the electrosonic. And uh, there's, uh, Watson did not hear the, the sounds as music, but other people did hear the sounds as music. They, they talked about, um, in fact, they were called musical atmospherics. Even uh, just in the late 19th century, people were talking about the, the musical quality of them. So the elect electrosonic is a source of natural being in music and auditory uh, aesthetics in electronic music, communications, and media arts. So it's a way, you know, uh, in symphony orchestras, you know, they, you know, violins, you know, they have the they have the wood there, you know, and that wood was a tree, you know, and and and, and conductors think they're they're in commune with the, you know, with the cosmos through, you know, the music of the spheres and the. Uh, divisions of the octaves and uh, or the intervals and and, <clears throat> and they, uh, there's all this sort of connection with uh, lots of music with nature, but electronic music, you know, um, uh, there there was an engineer in the 1930s that uh, was uh, that was talking about electrical music as as nature. Uh, the the problem is he had the you know because he said electricity was nature because of the, everything from the getting uh, a spark from the fur of a cat, you know, <laughs> uh, to lightning, you know, so that this was his bookends on uh, the nature that music. So he, he said that uh, if, so if you look at things in terms of these energies, then, um, then there's uh, what you usually think as technology, uh, that there is a, uh, a natural uh, footing uh, in there as well. <clears throat> so sound music from two forms of energy. This is uh, uh, this this is one thing that I 
have to settle on, um, that the two major forms of energy within classical physics are in mechanics, of which acoustics is part of, uh, and electromagnetism. So you get Newton and Maxwell. <clears throat> um, uh, you get into the 20th century, then you get into quantum stuff. So that's not classical. That's not classical physics anymore. Um, I'll talk about uh, that. I know that there's a lot of, you know, Karen Barrard, for instance, uh, is into quant uh, uh, theorizing things around quantum quantum energies, but um, I have a reason not to do that. But um, yeah, just like I was saying about uh, orchestras having this idea of kind of a Pythag geometrical Pythagorean relationship to the cosmos in the, that was always kind of upset by uh, the determinacy that's involved in that. That was always upset by the Aeolian, but then the same musicians were sort of ignoring that's, that wasn't music. Um, <clears throat> but, um, but the idea that the, that the music of the spheres, that uh, the, the sound of the cosmos was, you know, within certain forms of, of classical music in particular. Um, that was an idea that was mythological, whereas the, the, the energies and the transduction of those energies from outer space, six Earth radii, radii out, were, um, were in fact the, um, you know, the sounds of, sounds of outer space, um, sounds of the cosmos. Then you get like Bucky Fuller, actually writing in a catalog that was uh, Robert Barry uh, was in. Um, this is like the year after the, the piece that I showed you, um, saying that, you know, the cosmos is 99% electromagnetism. So there's this whole, there's, in the 60s, there's this whole sort of shift, and a lot of it actually has to do with, uh, uh, gets tied into ecological things, which I'll talk about. So I'm on my last two slides, and so what I'd like to do is just, uh, this is the segue um, from, you know, talk, talking about these things. We'll, uh, I'll open it up and uh, talk about questions, but then uh, hopefully we can uh, push this into where, into new territory. So as a, uh, as a natural force, electro electromagnetism, um, electromagnetism had the historical misfortune to disclose itself in the 19th century only at the very moment of its industrialization. So uh, by that, and in fact there's uh, some of, you know, you get this idea that there's sort of science discovers nature. And, uh, but it, in fact, a lot of the nature of electromagnetism was discovered through the, uh, through the industrialization of, of communications. Um, so the idea of the, you know, the popular idea of sort of traveling at the speed of light, you know, was in the 19th century and with uh, telegraphy was the speed of a spark. Um, but it had that idea of the, the speed at which it goes, that there was, sort of, it was calibrated on the, the distances that the uh, telegraph lines would go. But, <clears throat> so this is, this was, in, in fact, there was, uh, uh, Lord Kelvin was brought in to fix a technological problem 
about the bandwidth, essentially, of the transatlantic cable. So there was there was even sort of scientific uh, research that would advanced by the technology. But anyway, this is sort of this big uh, aspect of nature that was. Um, it would be like having a hydroelectric dam built at the same time that you discovered a river. You know, it, would, it, it was like there was sort of tech, or technology there and nature. So yeah, there, there was there's no no separation of the sort of technology and um, it was technologization. It's one reason when you think about electronic music or cell phones or something, it's all under the sign of, of tech, technology without, uh, with no nature. Um, with sound, for instance, you, you, the nature of sound, you have it, uh, Aristotle's talking about it, people, there was discourse on sound when, at the birth of discourse, you know, but there was, there was no na notion of this nature, and <clears throat> I mean, it was amber and lodestone. You know, it was like these, it was really crude until uh, the late um, uh, late 18th century. Um, yeah, so the familiar dis historical Western disjunction between nature and industrialism or technology uh, therefore could not be played out, a schism the, uh, which, through which a naturalist and environmentalist uh, discourses are developed. The other thing is that uh, this sort of abiotic nature is, it was not until kind of global warming that a lot of the ecological discourse was uh, really biotic, biotically based, you know. Um, uh, electromagnetism was nature lacking independence. It uh, appears to be produced not merely controlled by technological systems and is known through uh, experience with communications devices and systems. Um, if anybody wants to get into a discussion about Friedrich Kittler, um, we can talk about that. He's, you know, the, the uh, in historical media theory, um, he he will go down to the microcircuitry down to the voltage differences, but he won't go into the energy. If he went into the energy, he would get away from uh, circuit boards and. Uh, go to energy sources. You know, this this computer plugging into the wall goes to a coal fire plant, uh, electrical plant, for instance. Um, uh, the the wireless uh, goes into a global communications infrastructure. <laughs> you know, it's uh, if you follow the energies, you know, uh, it sort of opens up a world that not only is sort of electromagnetism and these energies. These transduce these moments, all these moments of transduction through it. Not only are they sort of natural, that but they sort of go out to the world much more readily. <clears throat> um, whereas a lot of media history sort of stops at the sort of this fetishization of the uh, of the device. I mean, you know, devices go out in other ways in uh, logistics of you know rare minerals and. You know, I mean, it goes out in, in many ways, but the energy, uh, it's pretty easy to, to uh, follow it there. Okay, um, it, this is the last slide. And um, despite occupying the mesosphere of lived electromagnetism, this is another uh, thing I had to specify. Um, a lot of 
I started looking for uh, electromagnetism, you know, within philosophy, 20th century philosophy, and uh, and theory or energy within theory, and I go, oh yeah, look at Whitehead, you know, and you go go look there, and and it, or go, you know, Deleuze talks about energy. Well, no, they don't, you know, and and when they do, uh, it's so vague. Um, it's there's no specification uh, of it. There's also this other thing within philosophy where you sort of jump right to reality. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so if you're following physics, you and classical physics was a very 19th century. Uh, you go you go straight to quantum, <clears throat> and, and now the 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 problem with that is the. Uh, Quantum, what's called the quantum floor, is not is pretty shallow. I think it's all the way up to, you know, quantum activity can be observed in a, in a in a buckyball. Speaking of bucky, I, that's about the largest I think that it's got. So there's this idea of macro quantum thing that, of course, is is there, but as far as um, the day, daily experience, we live in a world that, in a classical physical world. And so, uh, and we sort of don't know how it works because, uh, like I said, it was uh, in the mid 19th century, you know, that we never knew it as nature. Uh, it's always been within the, within the uh, it's always been technologized. Um, and there hasn't been sort of historical years long enough, sort of like dog years, but history years. There hasn't been like history years around long enough to form the vernacular. Uh, the way that, you know, we talk about other things, uh, that, that level of discussion is not around uh, electromagnetism and it's not around other forms of energy. <clears throat> Um, and and it becomes really evident also when you start talking about the, the materialisms, the material term, new materialisms, etc. That uh, you know one of the um, most prominent expressions of that was object-oriented ontology. They had a real problem with the relational aspects of it. Um, uh, they were talking about translation and mediation and uh, all this thing. Uh, the the thing with objects is they 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 stay nicely in one place even if they're just sort of nominalism, you know. And this one Latourian litany and I think it was Graham Harmon, you know, where uh, you have like a coffee cup and a shark and a, you know you have all, all this sort of plenitude of objects. One of them was electromagnetism, and it seemed really odd <laughs> that uh, that that would be seen as an object because it's. It's moving, <laughs> you know. It's not. Uh, it doesn't have really nicely described bounds. So if, um, theoretically, it's always better to have um, these pre prescribed sort of textualizations of uh, atomizations of, of reality. Same thing with assemblages. Uh, often, when um, I mean Jane Bennett in Vibrant Matter does talk about electricity at, at one point, um, but for the most part. Uh, Energy, people nod to energy within assemblages in what I call assemblage juice. You know, it's sort of the juice that's running through these things in networks. Uh, networks are often seen as a inscriptive, uh, in an inscriptive way. 
rather than a, a transmissional way, as uh, cartographic inscription. But the, the thing is, if there was a specification of, of, uh, of the energies that are actually involved, then I think there's, uh, it would bring a, a, a le another level of articulation to, to network and uh, uh, assemblages and things, things like that. And also you have to get over the, um, if you think that energy is immaterial, um, even Robert Berry, you know, in the, what, 19, in the late 60s, were saying that, uh, because this was in the discussion at same same time as the dematerialization of the artwork, he, he said, well, no, it's not sort of dematerialized. It's, it's as there, as much there as any, you know, and anything else. So it, but if you, if you look for uh, notions of materialism, you know, ask, it's almost as though they were formed within the sphere of matter, uh, with, uh, and the forms of matter will be articulated and specified, but just look for sort of specification of, of energies. And this conference that we're going to be doing, uh, in August next year, is uh, the arts of energies getting specific. So we're going to sort of demand that, you know, um, even if it's notions of energy like libidinal energy or sort of occult presences or, you know, things like that, we're going to ask people to, this is one thing that Linda Henderson uh, does very well. We're going to uh, ask people to get uh, very, very specific. And I think once you get specific, then you can start thinking about it in these uh, uh, larger configurations. Um, whew, just a minute. Um, so um, energy in terms of uh, ecology. Um, Michel Serres, uh, the French philosopher, poet philosopher, uh, very much into sort of turbulence and energies. Uh, a lot of it is thermodynamic for him. Um, he has a notion of world objects, uh, objects that are massive, just, just um, uh, distributed, massively distributed in space and time. Um, uh, it's like hyper hyper objects, but he was talking about it in the 19, 1990s. And his first world object, uh, although there are these larger things, these objects like uh, telecommunications that were massively distributed in space, and uh, at least um, he talks about the atomic bomb. Hiroshima, like figures, really uh, quite uh, big in uh, in all of his uh, work, and. Uh, so two objects are the atomic bomb and global warming. And the reason he says that it's a world object in the atomic bomb, because he said that there was a philosophical moment <clears throat> when there, there was the atomic weapon, nuclear weaponry was a self-awareness of global self-annihilation. And so that, um, uh, that pertains also to global warming. Uh, the, the first is in this apocalyptic narrative like that is amenable to uh, Christian uh, apocalypse and also Hollywood action films. It's got a nice sort of you know resolution and then stuff happens after that. But, um, and with global warming, it's more of a slow burn. But the, 
in my next book, I'll be writing about the uh, about where media in the sort of uh, global 19th century notion of media fits into the notion of world objects. But what he what he does he does also say that the um, uh, that the historical again in history years the difference between uh, he, he says essentially that atomic weaponry were uh, a rehearsal for global warming in terms of the self-awareness of self-annihilation. Um, but it, he, he remarks at one point about how closely, uh, uh, close together uh, they, they were. Um, and from, from an energy perspective, I look at that and <clears throat> the, uh, the atomic bomb fits, uh, there's lots of atomic stuff in there because it was uh, sort of filling out the cultural incursion of the electromagnetic spectrum was uh, sort of punctuated with uh, 1945 with the with atomic weaponry, and because that sort of slaps it all the way up to gamma, you know, that pins the needle uh, all all the way to the all the way to the right. So if you look at uh, those two things as energy, because of the sun and solar thermal interactions, if you look at global warming as a matter of energy and and uh, the relationship to fossil fuels and the, which is in fact just sort of old uh, sunlight. Um, then you can see that there's, we, we are in, since 1945, we are in an energy spasm. You know, so it's, uh, it's a way to, to think about, you know, uh, uh, eco ecology in terms of, uh, of ener energetics. And so I, I, there, this is where a lot of, you know, it seems odd that you could have a, a relationship of, uh, of electronic experimental music or something and ecology, but then you get Peter Blamey's uh, stuff. You know, and, you know that, that there is a uh, there is a connection, and I'll end end up with uh, that. The if you look at uh, media as these energetic systems that have been at Earth magnitude because of the speed of light, um, you know, in the, in the mid-19th century on, uh, it's, well, I'll, I'll just, actually, I'll, I'll, I'll stop there. The, the, what I'm doing now is trying to get nature, use nature, which a lot of people don't want to talk about now because, you know, um, because it's supposed to refer to sort of a romantic notion of nature. I, I, I'm using nature to sort of break open historical media theory because it's, na it, it's nature, it's a place where, again, because it was industrialized same time as the nature was, dis nature was discovered, uh, putting nature back into media history and media theory is actually a way to open it up to, to shop, show there's some stuff in this in terms of what's called green media, like greening the media by Toby Miller and Richard, uh, Richard, what's his face? Uh, and, and there's other green media analyses, but they're all on the uh, kind of a uh, pollution side of things. You know, they're all on the dumping e-waste and they're all on uh, Stripping resources, mining, and ex, uh, talk, uh, t you know, uh, poisoning workers, uh, and just uh, you know, it's it's uh, the 
carbon footprint and just the logistics of manufacturing and distributing and and the uh, energy suck of server farms and you know so <clears throat> there but it's all sort of on this sort of it's on a negation side and there's I think there's a way to have sort of a radical positive positive uh, uh, approach towards uh, and energies at, uh, uh, as well anyway I'll um, I'll, I'll stop there, and I, I didn't expect to go this long, but... Um. This recording was produced by Mara Schwitt-Vega for Liquid Architecture on the land of the Boon Wurrung and Woi Wurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge them as the traditional owners of this land and recognize that sovereignty has never been ceded. We pay our respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. Liquid Architecture is an Australian organization for artists working with sound and listening. To learn more head to liquidarchitecture.org.au